All right, well, welcome to the Journey to the Stage podcast. I'm Brian Frazier. Our theme song is A Rise and Shine by my good friend from San Antonio, Chris Taylor. Chris is a visual and musical artist, and you can check out his work at chrisTaylorWorld.com. The goal of this podcast is to discover what shaped the musicians that are shaping and making today's music. We'll cover current and upcoming musical projects, but we start at the beginning of the musician's journey. This is episode one, and I'm honored to have as my first guest, John Jackson. John is a very talented multi-instrumentalist. He's senior vice president and head of a r at Legacy Recording CMG at Sony Music. That's a mouthful. And John has been a part of one of the greatest bands in American music, the Jayhawks. Um, John, welcome, and thank you for joining me. Thank you, Brian. I appreciate how you having me. Yeah. I want to start kind of in the beginning of of your own musical journey, you know, thinking back to your childhood home, you know, what music were your parents listening to that, that still sticks with you? What styles and sounds kind of turned you on as, as a child, um, musically speaking? Well, uh, it's funny because I think people always come back to the music that they heard when they were younger, you know, and whether it's when you're in your twenties or your thirties or whatever, you know, there's something about nostalgia, something about, uh, just the the general patterns of how things come and go from mm-hmm. pop culture. Uh, so, you know, my, my parents listened to a lot of like John Denver, singer songwriter stuff. My dad was a huge fan of John Stewart's oh, nice. um, who, if you don't know John Stewart, your listeners should definitely go check his stuff out. Um, yeah. So it's a lot of that singer songwriter sort of AM gold, Gordon yeah. Lightfoot, Jim Croce kind, kind, kind of stuff where, um, you know, it's all about the, the, the song and the melody and the sort of instrumentation around it is pretty sparse. My parents were into that. So my mom was a huge classical music fan. So there was always sort of Mozart and Beethoven and things of that nature being played in the house as well. It was, it was a lot of that, uh, a lot of that seventies, you know, AM gold stuff that people used to love. And what a, what a period of music that was. I, very similarly, my my mom was the mis- big music buff in, in my family. And one of the greatest gifts she gave to me was a very wide-ranging musical palette. So grew up hearing all those guys, Denver and uh, Jim Croce, a lot of Simon and Garfunkel, but also a lot of Frank Sinatra, uh, a lot of big band stuff. And then when she remarried my stepdad, you know, having a, a step-uncle like Hank Cochran, I got a lot of country music. Uh, oh yeah in my my mid to late teens so my father is actually really into sinatra now yeah and like got into it kind of as he i guess got nostalgia for the music that was popular when he was a kid you know Mm -hmm. so that's all he's got the sinatra sirius xm channel on all the time now whether you're in the car at home or whatever and it's sort of the same thing like you've got a you know you you reach back for that's the stuff that was comforting to you when you were, you know, eight, 10 years old, whatever, but then it takes on new meaning for you, you know, especially if the songs have timeless lyrics or, or, um, you know, some sort of universal message that transcends the ages, you know? Absolutely. And so as you began to develop your own musical taste, what, what were you listening? Oh man, I went, I went the opposite way. I got into, I was in high school when like, you know, hair metal and, and pop metal were huge. Yeah. So I was really into, you know, not not so much the the real cheesy stuff, but you know, Aerosmith when they had their big comeback, and when the when the Stones sort of came back in '89, like during that period, that was a real big period of musical discovery for me. And when the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame first started, and 
sort of starting to reach back into the history of the music in a way that, uh, you know, was just becoming a thing at that point. Um, late 80s box sets on CD and album yeah. reissues on CD was, you could finally buy these things. And I, I, I worked in a record store for a couple of years when I was like oh. 15, 16. Nice. And every time a new one would come in, a Jimi Hendrix box set or a Who box set or the Zeppelin box set or something like that, like I just, you know, immediately buy it, whatever the new thing was that, that week and started to build up like a collection mm-hmm. um, library which I've dragged around with me ever since. But, you know, it's just it, the idea of, of owning it was a big deal. And, and w- what you could get in this new format was something that made record collecting a whole new boom again and, and was really just fascinating for me. And then, and then it all kind of, you know, the ultimate was the original um, Elvis Complete 50s Masters, yeah. um, that King of Rock and Roll box set, um, which is just the most beautiful still the most beautiful looking thing i think that's that's been done in that space and it was easy because it was well here's everything he did in the 50s and and i actually have since gotten to know the two guys that put it together ernst and roger and wow yeah and and that that particular set really started me on this on this mission to kind of educate myself and become you know steeped in the history of rock and roll music that's really awesome. Well, and of course that played into what you, what you majored in, in college. And I'll get to that in a minute. And so in terms of your experience as a musician, when, when did you start playing? Were your parents musicians? What was your first instrument? Maybe tell us a little bit about that. No, my mom it wished that she could play music and she does play piano and sings really well, but she sort of wishes that that had been part of her growing up. So when we were kids and there were five of us, you know, it started when I was, I think, seven or eight years old. It was violin lessons for all five of us every week and practicing at home and playing in, you know, school concerts. And, nice. you know, I, I did that all the way through the end of high school. And yeah, that sort of music discovery and getting pretty good at playing the violin. Like I was the concert master of the my orchestra in high school when I was a senior. But at the same time, I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to play guitar and I want to, (laughs) I want to be in a band. And, and, and right at that same time, there was this whole kickoff of new bands that were playing music that was more like old music. Like the black crows was the first one that was sort of like, Oh my God, here's people that are my age that are doing the thing that I love. Um, And it was, you know, purposefully a throwback and, you know, we're going to make this sound like a, you know, exile on main street or something like that. And so like, I immediately ran to them, you know, saw them as many times as I could and collected every, you know, cassette single and, (laughs) you know, which is what ended up leading, leading me to discovering the Jayhawks because they were on the same label and that label American um, recordings was really good at promoting their new albums. And I still worked in the record store. And so they had all this promotional material for, okay, here's the next one coming on American recordings. And, you know, after Shake Your Moneymaker, it was Hollywood Town Hall. And I was like, oh, well, yeah. it's the same. It must be good. Right. Right. And so, you know, got the cassette and like first, first second of listening to it, I was like, this is what I, what I want right here. Yeah. Um, and the harmony singing and, you know, cause that wasn't really a thing in the, you know, with grunge bands or other bands that were popular in the early nineties, people weren't singing in harmony with each other, or much less playing acoustic guitars that actually sounded like acoustic guitars. Yes. So to me, that was like the aha moment of like, wow, 
people are doing this again and and could, i could like be in a band and play music that i actually really like at what point in that did you pick up a guitar and start learning it wasn't until like probably senior year of high school that was that sort of you know 91 time when when all of when all of it sort of started clicking and i I met a guy through working at the record store who was like, oh, I play guitar. I'll show you how to do a couple of things. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. And so, you know, showing folk chords and things to just sort of work on in your free time. And then, you know, I went away to college. I went to Indiana University. Yeah. Like I went to play in the, the music department, music school as a violin performance major. And so I went there because they're a huge university that has a really well-known music school. My three requirements were big university, great music school, far away from home. So that's sort of like <laughs> ticked check. all three boxes. Yeah. Check, check, check. <laughs> and so, so I was, I was actually drawn to um, the school, the music school had classes in rock and roll history and they had been doing them for you know a number of years at that point, but they were sort of going from one class to, to two classes to two classes to a third class that was sort of a music of the Beatles class. And, uh, and, and I just couldn't get enough of it. And I went right up to the guy that was teaching and I said, I got it. Can I be involved in this somehow? You know, do you need somebody to help you with test days? And because the classes were like 400 people. Yeah, like huge lectures and they'd blast this music. And it was just this amazing experience of like getting educated about something you actually cared about, well, you know, yeah. instead of biology or something that you kind of, you know. These... Well, and you'd never want to miss class because you're, you're getting to learn stuff that is part of your life that you want to learn about. Was... Exactly. And, and the trick, their secret trick was that the actual students in the music school didn't take these classes. And it was all these kids from the College of Arts and Sciences or the business school or kids on the football team. And so all of their credit money for taking this class was pouring into the music school. And so they were like, yeah, teach more. Yeah, rock and roll history. Yeah, go for it. Add another class and another class and another class. So I sort of was there at the time when they were growing this. And um, and so, you know, I, I became like a teaching assistant and and uh, helped out in that. So that's when I really doubled down on the the historical side of stuff and just reading and listening and immersing myself in as much as humanly possible. Nice. And so I, I bet you could probably crush people at, at Rock and Roll Jeopardy. <laughs> I don't know. That's right. Trivia is always dicey because yeah. uh, it's very specific questions. Yeah. Right. It's like, what's the third song on the, oh, I'm, I'm more like, well, you know, what does Elvis mean in the context of the 20th century? You know, yeah. that those sort of, those sort of questions. Yeah. Now at this point, what were you wanting to do in terms of career? Cause I know you are a songwriter, you've been a producer, a studio musician. In fact, I saw as I was looking at, at some of your credits, you actually played on a Sandra McCracken album in the early two thousands. And I love her voice. She's got such a great and unique voice. That, that is actually not correct. And there's, and the, the, the madness of being named John Jackson or such a common name is that you often get confused with uh, other people. I, I assume that John Jackson is the one who played with Bob Dylan in the 90s. And um, he and I actually have connected only on Instagram. And um, our joke is that we're going to have a band called the John Jacksons. And you, <laughs> you, only people named John Jackson can be in the band. But yeah, but if you look on, you know, Discogs or, you know, all music or whatever, there's there's a zillion people and it's like trying to find the match up the right person with the right credits is is often difficult. No, I, I didn't actually start 
I kind of put the violin down and said, okay, I'm going to be the, the, the historian person and reverted back to my, you know, box sets and record collection, CD collection mm-hmm. and said, well, obviously this is a job. So how do I do this as a job? Um, you know, make these sets and, and, and get this information and music out to people. And so what I started to do as I was teaching assistanting for the rock history guys was just writing blind letters to anyone who produced any of these sets in LA or New York or whatever. And just like, okay, maybe I could have a meeting with you at some point. I didn't really realize at the time what an impossible task I was, I was asking for, but, um, one of these sort of pitch letters finally got to um, a guy that was the head of marketing at Legacy at the time, a guy named Adam Block. And he um, he had me come in uh, and have a meeting with him. And he was like, well, yeah, you're the exactly the kind of person that should be here. And then he got me he got me an internship like a summer internship and uh between i think my junior and senior year and that and and i was like well i you know i i kind of need to make a couple bucks doing it because i would have been commuting into new york at the time whatever so he said sure no problem no problem and then the day before that internship was supposed to start he called me back and said i'm really sorry but our funding fell through and i can't offer you this internship anymore no (laughs) yeah and i was like crushed but he was like well no but keep in touch and find something at some point. So, you know, about a year later, then a position opened up as like a, literally like a phone answer. And I was like, yes, I'll take it. Yeah. But in that meantime, I ended up started to play in a band, um, a local band in Connecticut, you know, started getting used to, you know, how to not be in an orchestra, but be in a, you know, rock band playing guitar and, you know, getting in a car and driving and playing a gig. And it's like, Mm -hmm when you first start doing that, that's, you know, it's like a very novel and exciting experience. And it is. So, yeah. So started doing that kind of at the same time. And, uh, and then we made a couple of records and um, so got some studio experience and, and then, you know, just kept at it while I was, I kind of kept both things going at the same time. This, this band where I was, yeah, I was writing songs and this career where I was making records and sort of was going back and forth in them. Nice. Now, I know at Sony, you've you've been able to be a part of some really really nice projects. What are some of those that really stand out to you? What what's some things that you look back on? You're like, wow, I'm really proud of how this turned out. Because there have been some really neat things. Talk to us a little bit about that. Probably the most exciting um, overall uh, artist that I was able to be in that I've been able to be involved with is ACDC. Just because they're, you know, they're still around. They still make great music and mm-hmm. play the Enormo domes of the world. And <laughs> and their catalog is just so great. You know, it's pretty concise. And there's they don't have really a bad... If you like them, you like it all. Um, there's no bad music if you're an ACDC fan. So working with those guys and doing... Um, particularly, we did a couple of big projects. There was one called Backtracks. It looks like a guitar amp and it actually is a guitar amp like you can plug a guitar in and play I've it see, i've seen that that isn't lights turn on and everything i've uh, that's a pretty incredible package yeah so we sort of you know like i had one of those little um like uh, cigarette pack amps have you ever seen those mm-hmm. somebody gave me one of those and i was like why don't we just take this and put it into a box and then incredible. you could actually play it and so we figured out how to do this out oh, that was a fun one and then you know obviously working with elvis was my dream because I ended up I ended up figuring out that Indiana Indiana University had a program or they still have a program called the individualized major program so I convinced them to give me uh the world's first college bachelor's degree in rock and roll history that is so cool 
Yeah. And there was, they do 10 students a year about, and, you know, people do all kinds of crazy things where you put a bunch of classes together and you get a faculty sponsor and you do thesis research and all that. And I did all my thesis stuff on Elvis because I felt like of all of the singular characters, like he changed the world the most. And it was more of a college type approach to his music. In 2004, Sony and what was BMG, this is super inside baseball, but Sony and BMG merged as two record companies. So suddenly the Columbia Records and Epic Records, which Sony had merged with RCA Records and Arista and, you know, a whole bunch of other big ones. And so I was finally able to like, oh, I can like get involved in the Elvis catalog. And of course, there were people who were already very involved in it. And that was sort of a job unto itself because he was making so much money selling you know, CD products and stuff that took a little while. But then once we did, it was like, oh, we can actually like really get into some of these areas of his career, you know, very specific moments, specific periods of time, uh, similarly to what was had already gone on for years with like the Bob Dylan bootleg series. Right. right. Um, which, of course, I was a huge fan of. And but doing a deep dive into like the th- the four shows in three days that he did at Madison Square Garden in 1972 it was like, that's awesome. Or, you know, specifically what the, the most recent one we just did was the studio sessions he did in 1970 with, um, you know, the Nashville cats, you know, he's still doing amazing music. And one of the things that I wanted to do was really rescue seventies Elvis. Cause it's such a, you know, that has such a bad rap and it's like, Oh, he does the 68 comeback special. Then he sort of flounders for a while. He does Aloha from Hawaii. Then he kind of gets fat and dies. And that's like the, the short version of the story that keeps getting shorter and shorter and shorter over time. And I'm like, hold on a sec. Yeah. Every year between 69 and 77, he was doing something great. And if you look for it and find it, you actually can tell a much deeper story um, than had been done before. And everyone loves to talk about the Sun Records and, you know, even some of the soundtrack stuff in the 60s people love. But the 70s was always very maligned. And I was like, well, hold on one sec. Like, mm-hmm. he's back out on the road. He's in the studio doing songs that he wants to do. He's singing his butt off. And he's going through, yes, personal crises of one form or another, you know, over the years. But everything that rock and roll people do, he basically invented. So being the first to do any of it is always the hardest. So so just, just to have people sort of reassess that. And I, and I hope that that's happened in the last decade or so. Well, that's an important work because, I mean, even in terms of overall rock history, you're right. There is so much, so much in the past that is yet to be uncovered. And I think that's, that's a really important work you're doing. And so just to kind of move, move us forward a little. So how did the Jayhawks then as, as a band, obviously you discovered them around the Hollywood Town Hall era, but how did they kind of re-enter your world? Well, so I mentioned American Recordings, their label Mm -hmm. um, that put out the, the, Hollywood Town Hall, Tomorrow the Green Grass, Sound of Lies, Rainy Day Music, Smile. It's owned by a gentleman named Rick Rubin, right? Because it's an owned label, he actually every so often will, you know, take it and run it through Universal Music or run it through Warner's Music or run it through Sony Music or, you know, so it's sort of bounced around throughout the 2000s a number of times. The second time it came to Sony... And every time it went somewhere new, all of the CDs would go out of print. Any vinyl that you had done would have gone out of print. You know, this was still in the sort of the download era. The catalog division of whatever the new company was that he was running it through would have to do 
all of the work of, you know, ingesting the masters and doing the metadata and, you know, the cover art and anything that was going to be on CD I had to get the packaging into production and replicate CDs. And it was like a huge undertaking. But the second time it came through Sony, they basically were like, what's the fewest number of these we can put on CD? What's the, you know, everything's going to download. You know, this was like 2004, 2005, something like that. Everything's going to download. Like, let's just do like the, the couple Johnny Cash records, the few Black Crows records, a couple of Jayhawk. And I actually was like, well, hold on a sec. Instead of that, what if we did a Jayhawk's best of? Because there hasn't been one yet. And, you know, my bosses ran it up to Rick Rubin's people and they sort of talked and they were like, oh, that's a great idea, actually, because it could could just have one thing in print and it would represent the band and be marketed as new. So that's when I started talking to P.D. Larson, who's the band's archivist and tour manager, and they call him the Swiss Army Knife because he is. Um, Great title. (laughs) Yeah, he kind of just does everything for the band. So. He and I, that's when he and I were introduced and, you know, we've had a great relationship since. And so we started figuring out what the track should be, what the packaging should be, what the, you know, we ended up doing a a version that had a whole second CD of kind of rare stuff, plus a DVD of all the music videos and EPKs and all that kind of thing. So it was a a pretty cool package, extensive package. It's beautiful. And I've got it. What blows my mind about that package all of the unreleased material and just the quality of it. I mean, I I look at some of the songs that were on there, you know, I I can make it on my own. of songs that didn't make it on albums is better than many bands greatest hits because the writing was so rich and there was vast it was a vast catalog what was it like going through and revisiting these songs that had never really been heard before i i was obviously well steeped in the regular catalog Mm -hmm. but then pd would just keep sending me these like you know burned cds he's like oh here's another batch of stuff i found or oh yeah here's a Here's a dat tape of, uh, you know, early versions of Sound of Lies songs. Uh, we should get this transferred and listen to what it is. Or Hollywood Town Hall and Tomorrow the Greengrass on American recordings through Warner Brothers. That was like a huge push for those guys. And so they spent a ton of money in the studio. They spent a ton of money on, you know, music videos, all of that stuff. One of the great things that I think still needs to be done with these guys is um, the show in Chicago in 92 you see some of it in the hollywood town hall epk mm-hmm. but there's a theater show in chicago in 92 that was shot by nfl films oh. on film um that's the kind of money they were spending on them at the time and um i've seen all the reels of this and it's like i assume most or all of the whole show but obviously it would require going back and scanning the film and mixing the audio and all of that stuff and mm-hmm. american owns it the band doesn't own it so Anyway, so there was a ton of stuff from that period, especially the 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 mystery demos. 
Yes. Um, because Rick would tell him, you got to just keep writing, like, give me more songs. I, and then at Sound of Lies period, they had bought ADAT machines. So there was all this like early versions of the songs from that record, plus all this other stuff. And like Craig had joined the band at that point. So mm-hmm. they were doing all these like space jams and playing with guitar effects, pedals and ebos and, right. you know, really kind of stretching out in ways that, um, and Gary will tell you this, other bands like sort of got more famous for, but they were doing it first, you know, like Wilco or whatever, but they were clearly doing it first with like the early version of like Poor Little Fish or, you know, Men Who Love Life or any of that stuff is like mm-hmm. really experimental for a quote unquote roots rock band or whatever. Right. Fish swimming in the water, So there, so there was just this ton of material. And then the Smile sessions, they were really, for Smile was the first time, two, 2000, was the first time that, that American had gone through Sony. And Sony was put the Jayhawks on Columbia Records. Mm-hmm. And Columbia Records was, you know, Bruce Springsteen and Celine Dion and like, the hugest record label and you know the people that ran the label was the same thing they were just like no keep writing songs like keep writing songs and i think you posted the the i'm gonna make you love me story about you know they just kept saying we need this to be better and and, you know your guy like gary it's like well what do you mean better i don't don't understand what you're talking about So, so, you know, that yielded a lot of material and um, obviously live shows are always great, you know, because they have all these songs um, that they'll do once or twice or a cover here and there or what have you. And, and it's just this amazing amount of stuff. You know, there is no bad Jayhawks music. Like, it's all awesome. I, so, I agree. I so agree. putting that together was like just an absolute treat. And I still have the giant stack of CD burns that PD sent me. Oh man, you're, that I will you're treasure lucky. forever. Yeah, well, you know, I I really believe that that Gary Lewis is one of the greatest songwriters in American music history. And, and the reason I think that is obviously because I love his music. But if you look at, and you would know even better than I would, a lot of people can write and and do well for a period of time, but longevity in songwriting, I think, is kind of rare. There are people who notably get there. I think Paul Simon is one of them who. Even into you know before he retired, his last albums are just brilliant. I mean, mm-hmm. so good. And I look at what Gary's done, not just in his body of work with the Jayhawks, but you look at you know Golden Smog, Au Pair, and other songs that he's written for others. You know, he wrote with um, Emerson Hart from uh, from Tonic, which I'd love to hear 
um, some of the songs that came out of that, but he's got such a, a longevity of just great, great songwriting. And I think that's kind of rare. You as somebody who studied rock music, what's your, what's your take on that? I, first of all, I agree with you. You know, I, I, I've, I've said always that I think they're the best band of the last 30 years, easily best American band anyway, of the last 30 years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, yeah, Gary is just one of the great songwriters. And, you know, Tim is also a great songwriter. Perlman's yes. a great songwriter. Turns out Karen had some great songs, which you've heard on XOXO. Yeah. Uh, Mark Olson, I will say, great songwriter also. Mm-hmm. Craig Johnson, great songwriter. So it's like, you know, the, the combination of all these people is pretty unique. But it, but as far as Gary goes, like, you know, he's true songwriter. You know, he, he's writing songs. It's words and melody. That's what you're looking for. Yeah. And a lot of people who get famous in music are part of a scene or a sound where it's not really about the song. It's kind of what does the song sound like? And is this, you know, similar to other things that are popular right now? And therefore it becomes popular. And it's not necessarily a great song. So those people come and go and they had their moment in time. But somebody like Gary or, or anyone that has studied songwriting really can 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 make it last and and constantly be doing it that's the other thing i mean i talked to him two days ago and he's he's got like tons of new songs and he's like you got to hear this one you got to hear this and i'm like awesome great i think he's working on a new solo album yeah yeah there's a new solo that's done um i think that this just with you know when to put it out and when to do shows or launch it or promote it or whatever is sort of tbd at this point but Yeah. yeah that's great too and Vagabonds is great. And, oh my goodness. Uh, well, so and that was the album. thing with the, the, the Back Roads album was when we finally got to, oh, let's let's do something else. Like the second round of... of so, so, all right, so hold on. So we did the best of the music from the North Country. Then we did the Hollywood Town Hall and Tomorrow the Greengrass reissues. So great. Love those packages. Yeah. Doing those and promoting them is what caused the band to get back together in the first place. Mm. So with Olsen, and they did those special show. That was literally 10 years ago, I think, last month or the month before. Wow. I got a Facebook, you know, 10 years ago on this day. I was like, <laughs> holy crap. I, you know. So they were doing two shows in markets, doing Hollywood Town Hall and Tomorrow the Greengrass, plus mm-hmm. other hits. You know, that sort of then led them into Mockingbird Time and doing that tour. And then... Olsen leaving again and then the the American catalog left Sony again went to Universal and it was like can we do similar packages with Sound of Lies Smile and Rainy Day Music and you know the people at Universal were like yeah that'd be great you know so PD and I did those for Universal and uh and and those those came out and then so then they did a tour with Craig and Jesse at first right yeah Yep, who obviously played on In Golden Smog and um, Sound of Lies mm-hmm. and Smile, I think. Yeah, and, and, and right at that same time, let's see, now I'm trying to remember. Yeah, right at that same time, so, so before we did the second round of album reissues, Gary did a solo tour. The, you know, the Jayhawks had broken up after, mm-hmm. after Rainy Day Music sort of right. for the first time. And he did a solo tour and he was coming to a venue near where I, where I used to live in Connecticut. So he was, he was coming to this thing. Like, obviously like I had known him from doing the reissues, but like I was, you know, wasn't comfortable yet going, Hey, put me on the list for your show. So like I bought tickets and, you know, was really looking forward to it. And he ended up canceling that whole tour 
I still have um, my tickets. Actually. And and ended up doing the rehab thing, which he's you know talked about quite a bit. And then so when he rebooked the tour, and your tickets were still good, um, I actually had was then like a year later, and I would worked up the courage to ask him like, "Hey, the show is sold out. I notice you don't have an opening act. Do you think?" my buddy who I'm playing with and I could open up for you. And he was like, Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. And then at that show, he, he was like, Oh, well, do you want to come up and play with me? And it was a small place. There's a couple hundred people, something like that. And I said, yeah, that would be amazing. And he goes, well, what songs of mine do you know? And I said, all of them. <laughs> so, so he's like, how about this one? And I'm like, yeah, sure. I play that one. And he's like, how about until you came along? I'm like, love that one. Very, yeah, absolutely. So we ended up doing that. And then the, the following night, he was playing City Winery in uh, awesome. in New York. So he goes, you should come tomorrow night, too, and you can sit in there as well. And City Winery is five, 600 people, something like that. And I was like, yeah. great. So I did that, and that was actually the show where I met um, Craig, because Craig had been living in New York. And he had been doing this like amazing residency show at this little underground restaurant bar thing in the West Village, where you'd mm -hmm. see like... Peter Buck would show up and, oh you know, goodness. Kevin Kinney and Michael Stipe and, you know, all these great people, Lenny Kay would show up and just play. And it would be like, you know, they would start at 11, 1130 and go till four in the morning. <laughs> wow. And it would just be these great musicians like playing with each other. And I couldn't, I just couldn't believe it. Yeah. And so Craig was like, oh, you should come to my thing tomorrow. So it was like, like, it was like a Sunday night, a Tuesday night and a Wednesday night or something oh, like my. that. And suddenly I was like in the universe of these guys. And I was just like, holy, <laughs> like, I can't believe this. And then because we had done the reissues, they were like, oh, well, I think we're going to have Craig come back and do that era of the band and do a tour. Oh, that was a awesome. great tour. Yeah. And so he was like, ask Gary if you can come. That would be awesome. I, you know, I did again. And, you know, it just sort of like one show became two shows. And I mean, the first one. It's, this is this is insane because the first shows of that were in Spain and the first of those was this big outdoor festival like on this guy's farm and you know thousands of people this Americana festival do, they have every they year every year right mm -hmm. and so Craig goes you should you should come you should do that because Craig's amazing and he's like all the most inclusive person in the world and he's just wouldn't think anything of just being like yeah yeah come on over to Spain yeah 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 play play some songs with us it's like you can you can room with me in the hotels, and I'm like amazing. So I I, I get a ticket to Spain, and I tell Gary, oh, I'm going to be there, and you know, and he writes, he goes, I hope you're bringing your Mando, and I'm like, yeah. He's like, you can sit in, and I'm like, awesome. I get to the airport when they're getting to the airport from another somewhere else, and uh, all of their gear was gone. They didn't have any of their gear. It had, it had been lost by the airline. So Gary's SG, you know, Perlman's Fender bass that he's played on everything ever, all of it was gone. And they were, so they were freaking out. And I'm sitting there going, hey, remember you said I could come with you guys? Like, I came to Spain. <laughs> They're like, okay, get in the van. We got to get up to, the, um, oh, it's called the Huercasa Festival. That's what oh, it's okay. called. Right. right, right. There you go. They're like, just get in the van, come with us, we'll figure it out. So they get in this sprinter van, Spanish uh, uh, tour manager, drive out to the thing. It, between the time, between the like two hours it takes to get from the airport to the festival, the festival had arranged for amps and guitars and bass and keyboards and drums and everything that they would have needed. So it was like, okay, the show's happening. 
it had been so frantic that it wasn't like, oh, come up and play on these two songs or these four, you know, whatever songs. Mm -hmm. It was just sort of like, you're just, just get up there and do whatever you can do. And that's fine. (laughs) So then it was like, play on the whole show. And then it was like, (laughs) all right, from then on, it was like, if you can make it, you can play. Wow. Um, Yeah. So we did that whole tour and, you know, it was was East coast days, West coast, Midwest. It was a, I mean, it was just amazing. Yeah. Um, Yeah. That was quite quite a jaunt, and I I loved that tour. I absolutely loved that tour. It was so fun. Which show did you did you did you say you saw the Belly Up show? Yeah, I was at the Belly Up show, and oh, okay. also the Fillmore show. I usually try to catch two. Oh, the Fillmore was that was a that was an amazing. Wasn't that show? Great? I'm, I'm, I've seen the yeah. Hawks there. Actually, I saw Golden Smog there as well on another Fine Day tour. Such a historic place. And that was right when Tim O'Regan's solo album came out. So he did a full set on his own. Oh, wow. And then played the night with, with, uh, no, actually he didn't play with Golden Spock. He came up and played Jennifer Save Me um, with the band. Um, ah. So yeah, it was just, a, it was a great, great night. Do I understand this right? Were you co-producer on, on Backroads along yes. with Gary and Ed Eckerson? Okay. So yep. that is, that is huge. I mean, obviously the late, Ed Eckerson and you know and that was done legend. in our studio of course yeah very legendary what was it like producing that album which is incredible so the, the the steps between those two things were so after the tour with Craig the band does the um Mr. Proust record mm-hmm. for that record they were like oh we're doing two weeks in Portland at Tucker Martin's studio Flora with Peter Buck, like yeah. if you want to come out and, you know, do a couple of days, you know, out of an overdubs or play, you know, on some stuff, that would be great. Like they kind of just left it open like that. Mm-hmm. So I was, I went out for like a week and kind of just sat there and watched them do their thing. And I was like, wow, I'm in the studio with the Jayhawks. This is amazing. Yeah. One of the first things we, that we did was a song that actually didn't make the record. It's on the kind of outtakes CD. So for just before we're going to do that and it's, they do it all live. Like everyone's like, you know, and I never participated in that kind of a recording session before it's, I was always more of like, you get the drums and then you overdub guitars and then you overdub the singer at the end and you overdub percussion and, you know, kind of building a record the way that, you know, kind of more rock bands do. Right. But they were like, no, no, no. We just sit all in a room. And if somebody fucks up, you do the song again. Yeah. I love it. Or, you punch that little bit or whatever, but you, you just do it. And it's like, either you can do it or you can't do it. And I was like, okay. And Gary's like, and you're going to play the solo on this song. Oh, and I'm wow. like, okay, cool. like it was crazy anyway so so he goes uh yeah you so you're gonna play the solo on this song i was like oh cool and then i didn't screw that up so then had a couple of days of like well maybe i could put a little bando on this song or like how about a little bit on this and he he was kind of really open to it and so you know got to be on a, a little bit of that record nice 
which is a fantastic album. What a oh great, my gosh, yeah, great, great album that is. So for that tour, they ended up um, hiring a guy from Portland because everything was done in Portland. So they um, hired a guy named Chet uh, Leister from Portland who played plays in the band the eels because he plays steel and you know some of the other kind of wacky guitar stuff that um yeah. uh the album had on it so so while they were away and doing that i actually was kind of roped into being the co-producer on um the ray davies americana record yeah that was one of the highlights of of everything because it all kind of came together so so he came to sony and he had the kinks catalog he owns the kinks catalog from 1971 to the end wow. so muswell hillbillies all the rca arista records so he wanted to do a deal for them and at that point it was like yeah if an artist has a catalog that they own sony really wanted to do a deal with so it was like great do the deal and, and he said well i also have this new record that i want you to put out and we were like great that would be awesome we love that which usually means oh and here it is now put it out he was i he said i haven't even started it yet it was all in his head it's completely finished and all in his head at that point so he goes what should i do and i'm like what you, you asking me like what who am i like and he's like come on come over to london and we'll have meetings and i'll play you these demos and we'll and I was like, okay. And so he, he kept describing what it was that he wanted, which was, you know, he really wanted a drummer who sang. Oh, wow. That was his like first thing. And he's like, you know, like Levon, like somebody that has that kind of feel of a singer, but they play drums. And I was like, well, I happen to know a guy called Tim O'Regan. <laughs> yeah. He's like, and you know, somebody that loves Rick Danko who plays bass. And I'm like, well, the number one Rick Danko fan is Mark Perlman. So, and he's like, and I want, I need harmonies and I need, great piano player and i was just like you should just hire the jayhawks to be your band that is so cool and and he was like oh i've heard of them i like them they had done festivals you know mm -hmm. on the same days and in, in the past and stuff and he's like oh yeah i've heard of them do you think they would want to do this wow. and i was like well i could ask them it turns out gary's a massive kinks fan everybody in the band loves the kinks yeah how could you not <laughs> yeah so actually so this is before mr proust they came to london for a one day um off of the back of some european dates that they were doing when craig was still with them says so sort of like an audition mm -hmm. and it was wild because he had both songs like he had already had had like a finished vocal done to okay. a demo mm -hmm. so he was like i want to use this vocal but you guys have to play along to it wow and then do harmonies to it and all of that stuff. So watching them do that just made me again go like, this is like, this is the greatest band. Like I have to do more with this. Yeah. So they got the, they got the gig. We came back the following December and, you know, recorded the first album of Americana in a couple of weeks. After that, I was like, I gotta like work on a real record with these guys. Yeah. So 
I can somehow convince Sony to sort of sign a new Jayhawks record because Mr. Proust had kind of come and, you know, done its thing promotionally. And I was like, you got to, we got to do a, a new record. And they were like, okay, you know, they, they always do well. It's the, everyone loves them. It's great. Yeah. And I, so I said, Gary, like, we, I'd love to do a new record with you guys. Like, let's, let's do a record. And he goes, well, I don't have any songs. You know, I don't have any new Jayhawk songs. And I said, well, sure you do. You have all these songs. Like, I would love to do a version of, um, you know, going to be in darkness. And he's like, oh yeah, that's a great song. Yeah, I'd love to do, you know, everybody knows. And he's like, well, yes, of course. And he does that in the solo set and bitter end. And, you know, oh, yes. there's, um, I was kicking around with PD and we came up with this, you know, Spotify playlist and all these lists of songs he had co-written it was like you know 50 songs to pick from or something oh my goodness so we kind of narrowed it down and it was like well yeah this would be a great jayhawks record cool let's go do that so we went to minneapolis and worked with ed at flowers which they had done several times before you know most of smile was recorded at flowers you know they had deep history working with uh, with ed at flowers so you know it was really again really easy it was like a week the the four of them would play it every the songs live and then we'd get into like, okay, guitar overdubs or, you know, mandolin overdubs or violin or, you know, there's a couple of those songs have some harmony violin parts that I kind of had to work out a little bit. A um, bunch of backing vocals, you know, piano and organ. So it was sort of like a, a bit of a hybrid of a kind of recording session, but I, I thought it was amazing. Yeah, such a great album. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and everyone seemed to, I mean, all the songs were ringers. That's the thing. It's like, and people that were fans of the band had heard most of the songs mm -hmm. and people that were fans of like Dixie Chicks were like, oh my God, this is a great new version. Or, yeah. you know, Jacob yeah. Dylan helped to pr promote the record a little bit. And, you know, obviously we, we toured the, toured that one pretty extensively. And then now we're here, yeah. at least for me anyway. I mean, the, the XOXO record, you know, I think was Gary um, sort of reacting to the Backroads record because nobody else got to participate in songs on that record. Right. So, you know, he was like, okay, well, so the next one's going to be what songs do you have? Right. And obviously, like, you know, everyone has been in the group for 25 years. For sure. At that point. And so it was like the four of them wanted to kind of re-hunker down and, and do the stuff that they had been talking about and had kicked around for records and stuff for so long that it was just, just sort of about the four of them which is amazing for a fan because of course i'm a fan first and foremost and what an eclectic eclectic album um they were able to put out i mean it's there's some really some of my favorite jayhawk songs are from that album and even from backroads you know, I'll carry you to safety. I think that was a, a newer composition by Gary, if I remember reading correctly, but that is such a great song. And let's move ahead just a little bit as we as we wrap up our time. What has it been like for you to take stage and in some of these big places, festivals, you know, big venues? What is that like? Do you do you still get a little nervous before? What, what's that like for you as a, as a person, as a musician? I mean, not so much nervous as like, I can't believe this is actually happening. Yeah. I've got a weird sort of setup with them because I've got, you know, the violin, the mandolin, acoustic guitar, electric guitar. I try and like fill as much of the space as possible. The set lists from night to night could have very strange back and forth switches. And so I'm usually just focused on like, I got to get the next song. I got to get the, the chain instrument change. I've got to get the, you know, the pedals in the right configuration to make sure that everything sounds like it's supposed to. Where's my Ebo? 
so I, I often just find myself going like, okay, I just got to stay on top of this rather than getting nervous or even soaking in like what's happening because hearing the the three of them singing together and Isn't that rich? you know standing next to standing next to Perlman and watching Gary play and Tim play drums and mm-hmm. Karen playing keyboards and singing and we're always mugging at each other and stuff and it's it's just it's just so much there's so much joy to it in that you know hour and a half two hours that um i I, i'll never get i'll never get tired of it yeah well you know what's what's been apparent to me at the times because i've i've seen you perform with them several times and you know i think of the bruce tour in particular belly up show um you guys were just having so much fun and i think as an audience member it brings an extra special element to a show and i think because you guys were having so much fun it really created a looseness still being tight musically but just a real fun sense it was just it was really great are you guys just having fun even off stage? Because it just seems like there's such a, a great um, connection with you guys on stage. What's that like? Oh yeah, I mean everybody. I mean it's like a family. Like I said, the four of them, or or even Craig. You know, they've known each other their whole lives almost. Right. And you can't not have art. You know, arguments about things or disagreements. But it's also you know everybody loves each other, and mm-hmm. you know it's clearly respectful and are they're fans of each other you can tell sure but you know being a professional musician and being on the road is that's it's also hard mm-hmm. you know those couple hours a night of fun and joy and music and crowd and everything is you more than make up for that with the slugging you know to the next show and mm-hmm. setting up and doing the sound check and why doesn't my amp work? And, you know, uh, I broke, you know, I broke my string during a whatever song and, you know, all of that stuff is also, um, is always there as well. So it's, it's it's a give and take for sure. But it's, um, you know, those, those couple of hours of playing for people and and seeing the fans reacting and, and singing. I mean, that's the, that's the other thing with their songs is the fans know all the words. Absolutely. And, you know, even like some of them know you can hear them like singing harmony parts or, you know, the ones down in the front row that are particularly excited. Or when, um, you know, we're playing a a pretty stuffy theater, you know, like a really nice theater and people know like, oh, it's going to be blue and then they're going to do until you came along. So everyone's like rushes up to the stage and, you know, (laughs) starts like partying and everything. And it's a lot of fun. And, and And it more it more than makes up for all of the trudging and 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 you know flying and yeah. lugging gear and all that stuff it's just it's amazing well being away from home sure yeah i think um until you came along is such a great song to end on i, I remember when you when uh, you guys were at the belly up trapper shep their whole band there were more people on stage it was like it, it was like seeing a cool in the gang show there were so many people <laughs> up there but it was so fun it to me it is the epitome of the perfect bar tune um, and what a great way to, to send everybody out into the night. It's such a, a fun song.
So I know COVID is a bit of halt to live performances, but any idea of when you'll be on stage again? And no, no idea at this point. It's um, they've they've moved shows a few times, and like venues and promoters and stuff are continuing to hold you know windows of dates and stuff, but. I don't think anybody is um, confirming anything at this point that people can actually like buy tickets to or buy a pl- you know plane flight or anything like that. So it's yeah. there's nothing confirmed right now. Yeah. But the Jayhawks website would be the first place that you anyone would know anything about it. So um, and wonderful fan groups like the one that you run would be your source of info for any of that stuff. Yeah. In fact, I've found out about shows that I'm supposed to play on through some of these Facebook fan sites before, <laughs> you know, that's where I found out about them from time to time. That's hilarious. I'm like, Oh, great. Cool. There's another set of shows in, hey. you know, September that oh, how fun. <laughs> I'll be doing. <laughs> that's really cool, John. And so last question for you, how can people support you, support your work and, and what you're doing? Oh, I think probably just find me on Facebook. And, uh, you know, I usually am pretty good about posting stuff that's either coming up or, you know, uh, things I'm working on. You know, you mentioned uh, Trapper. I'm, I'm pr- I'll probably be working with him on his next record. Oh, really? Oh, he's yeah. really fun live, fun band. He's amazing. And he's a great songwriter. And him and Tanner, you know, sing great together. And yeah. It's just a lot of a lot of positive energy there. So um, yeah. I've been talking to him about that. I, I produced a guy called Caleb Caudle. His record came out also in the pandemic. Yeah. Um, so he couldn't really tour that, but we made that record at Johnny Cash's Cabin Studio. Wow. Um, in in uh, uh, just outside of Nashville, that was amazing. Had some great player. Gary sings on that record. Oh, um, nice. Okay. Yeah. And then actually I'm working on a new record right now with a guy called Billy Woodward in New York that Tim actually sang some amazing harmony stuff on. I love um, Tim's voice. So unique. Yeah. So great. Exactly. And works really well with this particular guy's voice. So, you know, I've got, got stuff happening, you know, even really remotely cool. and during COVID, you know, that's, that's the one great thing about, you know, for musicians during COVID is I feel like people have figured out how to do it, mm-hmm. you know, record from home and, you know, the technology has gotten such, like you said, where you get a great mic and some nice software and pro tools or logic or whatever. And, mm-hmm. you know, people are making records that have never even met each other. Absolutely. Yeah, it is. Very and cool. uh, yeah. And I feel like that's one good thing that's come out of all of this. Yeah. Well, John, I am so incredibly grateful for you. You will always be my very first guest, which is, which is really cool. So, um, well, I'm, I'm honored, believe me, in this you're a, you're a great host just in case you needed some support on that uh, oh, thank you. a lot of people that do interviews can't get out of their own way so you're you're gracious and knowledgeable and those are the two key factors in being a good uh, interviewer that's very kind of you to say I'll, I'll be honest i was a, a little nervous so i'll have to to meet you one of these days when i see the band live so well thank you john and thank you of course everybody for listening to the launch of this brand new podcast remember In a streaming world, the best way you can support an artist is to buy their work and to see them live when we're able. So please follow and subscribe so you don't miss future podcasts as we walk with musicians and songwriters on their journey to the stage.